Shabbat Shalom, everyone, and Mazel Tov. The uh, comedian Stephen Wright once said, uh, when thinking about uh, Thanksgiving meals, holiday meals, family occasions, he said, getting together with family is like shaking a tree and watching the nuts fall down to the ground. Which is to say that families are complex structures. Now, even if you are blessed, and I pray that you are, with the exceptions that prove the rules that, that your family life is without rancor or strife, disagreement or pain, you certainly have been around or heard of enough families to know that families, for all of the purported beauty, that families, despite all of the purported beauty that they suggest, more often than not, they seldom reach that point. This morning's Torah portion, I speak about it because this morning's Torah portion really is the construction of, the beginning of, the family that we would come to know in part as the people of Israel. The story we are told is Abraham's son Isaac. He finds a wife. They have children. Not only do they have children, but they have twins. And the birth of these twins, while certainly a moment of great joy in their family, because remember that Isaac and Rebecca, Rebecca, neither of them have been able to have children. And so the arrival of the twins was something that was greeted by them with great joy and expectancy. The Torah goes on to tell us that these twins, despite being born to the same parents, despite being born and conceived at the very same time, are dramatically different people. The Torah goes on to tell us, their names, by the way, are known to you, Yaakov and Esau, Jacob and Esau, Esau being the firstborn, Jacob just a few seconds later comes out. The Torah goes to describe them like this. It says that Esau, the elder, is an Ish Yodeat Sayyid. He's a person who knows his way around the world. He has street smarts. He's a hunter. He knows how to provide. And Yaakov, we are told, is Ishtam Yushebo Ali. He says that he's a simple guy who lives in tents, literally. That's what the translation is. The rabbis of ancient Jewish tradition go on to fill in exactly what this means. They ask themselves, what does it mean that Esau is a man who knows how to hunt? They said that he was skilled at deceiving people, capturing people, hunting people down with his words. That he would say one thing, capture them in his hands, and then actually do something else. A master of deception. Jacob, we are told, this simple man who lives, ohalim, intense, what do they say? He was like a yeshiva bocher. They say that the tents that he studied in were study halls, that he was a good boy. He got up in the morning, he cleaned up his dishes after breakfast, he went to school all day long, and then when he came home, his parents didn't have to ask him to do homework. He had already done it. He took out the garbage at night. He picked up his clothes off the floor. He was perfect. The story, however, takes a different turn. As they get older, we read, that Esau's behavior is disturbing to his mother. And that is, was the case in the ancient world, that the firstborn was the one who would be entitled to the patriarchy of the family. 
In this case, the patriarchy, the patriarchy of the family would not only be cows and land and money, it would also be this mythological blessing that came from their grandfather Abraham, the blessing that had been given to Abraham by God itself. And so their mother begins to hatch a plan, believing she does, that Esau isn't really worthy of this. She says to Jacob, the nice schoolboy who does his homework and picks up his clothes, she says to him, we're going to set it up so that your father will give you the blessing. Of course, helped by the fact that Isaac apparently was severely myopic, had trouble seeing, or maybe glaucoma, we're not sure. So this is what she does. On the day that Isaac tells Esau that he's going to get the blessing for him to go out and prepare a beautiful meal, so he goes out hunting. Rebecca, the mother, grabs Jacob. She tells him to put on a fur that had been held outside, outdoors, and go to his father with a beautiful dish of food. And as Jacob pulls closer to the father in the room, waiting to bless what he believes is Esau, he pulls him close, and he smells the coat of the outdoors on Jacob. Remember, this was a guy who spent all day in school. And he says, I smell the fields. The ancient rabbis say that what Isaac smelt is the reason why on Rosh Hashanah that we dip apples in honey. The reason why, according to Jewish tradition, that we dip apples in honey on Rosh Hashanah is because what, Jake, what Isaac smelled on the coat of Jacob, the coat that his mother gave him to deceive him in believing that he was Esau, he smelled the fields of the apples that grew out in the wild. And so we dip that in honey. What happens is that Isaac gives Jacob the blessing. No sooner does, I, does Jacob leave that Esau comes running in with the food that he had captured and prepared, and he asks for the blessing, and what does Isaac say to him? He said, it's gone. There is no blessing left. I've given it away. Didn't know it was to your brother, but it's no longer. I can only be used once. And then what ensues is perhaps one of the most deepest, wrenching, most painful things to be written in all of human literature. Listen carefully. When Esau discovers that the blessing had been given away, this man of the field, who apparently his mother had deemed, had no concern or care for things that were spiritual or meaningful. He was a man of the field and of the world. This is what he does. And Esau, Aesop says to his brothers, Do you own to his father, excuse me? Is it true that you only have one blessing? And then Isaac, his father, says to him, There's only one. And then Esau lifts his voice up, and he cries a bitter cry. What's happening here? At the very beginning of the story, we are told that Esau is the one who is the deceiver, and Jacob is the one who is the simpleton, the nice boy who follows the rules. At the end of the story, what do we discover? that Jacob is a deceiver, and Esau is the one who is a simple one, the one who we thought didn't care about the blessing, about things that were deep and meaningful, 
He's screaming for that. I often think this is an important idea about human life. You and I, I include myself in this. We're always so quick to define ourselves. I am this and I am that. I believe this and I believe that. But here's the test to ask yourself. The test to ask yourself is, if someone asked you what you believed in and what you were when you were 25 or when you were 35, I'm going to carry myself up in age now, or 45, at each time someone asked at different points in your life, did you have the same answer? Did you, do you still believe the same things now as you did when you were 35? I highly doubt it. I know that for myself, I don't. The things that I was absolutely convinced about, without a doubt, at the age of 18 or 20 or 30, I look back now, I'll give you a deeper example. I have all of my sermons dating back 30 years ago because I started my rabbinic career just when computers came online. And I remember the story told about the great philosopher Martin Buber. He once said he can't read anything he wrote before he was 40. Because he said it's too painful. It's not finished, it's not formed. I look back at the things that I wrote when I was 25, 30, 35, 40, even five years ago, and I cringe because I realize that it wasn't complete, that we're never ending, that we're a story that has a beginning, but it's always evolving. The story of Jacob and Esau, how one starts in one way, and at the end of the story, they become something entirely different, is absolutely, actually just a proxy for our lives. Whatever it is that you think you are now, you will not be that same thing a year from now. And that's a good thing, because you shouldn't be. The point of human life is not to be the same thing. God and faith calls us to grow. And in order to grow, it means to change. I remember, recall the story about the great Viennese composer, Arthur Schoenberg. I don't know if you've heard of him. I'm not a fan of his music, but actually this story, I'm a big fan of. Schoenberg lived in Vienna in the late 1800s, early 1900s, survived the war. But before the war broke out in the early 1920s, one of the surest tickets to be able to go to university and work in the Philharmonic, if you were Jewish, was to convert to Christianity. So he fell in love with a Christian girl, and he converted to Christianity. By the end of the war in the early 1950s, the relationship had dissolved, and he was heartbroken, and even more than heartbroken, he was aghast at himself. At the begging of a friend, on a cold and night, they were in Paris at the time, he, he decides at the begging of a friend to go to shul on cold and And there, in cold and night, sitting in the back of the shul, Schoenberg realizes that whatever it is that led him to do the things that he had done in the past, that he is no longer that person. 
he approaches the rabbi at the end of the Kol Nidre service after everyone leaves, and he asks the rabbi if he could have a reconversion ceremony back to Judaism. Now, there is no such thing as reconversion in Judaism. But Schoenberg's idea that what he was is no longer what he is, is a deep truth for all of us. And so the question in our lives is not what you are now. The real question in your life is what will you be? The question of your life is not what you think is right or what you believe at this moment. The question for your life is what will you